welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. On today's show, we'll talk to Governor Mead about his Endangered Species Act initiative, and we'll visit the town of Pinedale, where the mayor is at the center of a political firestorm. I didn't have the answer he wanted, so he told me I could go F myself. We'll hear about the challenge of personal finance in a boom and bust economy. They make more money than they've ever made before, and they think it's going to be steady. And we'll hear from members of the University of Wyoming's marching band as they take to the field for the Cowboys' first home football game. One rookie player is feeling jittery. Excited and a little sick. (laughs) We'll also hear about Senator Enzi's role in the upcoming budget negotiations and about a fashion show in Jackson. Those stories and more, all coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Aaron Trank. And I'm Melody Edwards. People in Wyoming are passionate about wildlife. Just say the word wolf in mixed company and see what happens. And it's the state's long history of negotiating with the federal government over endangered species like the sage-grouse and the grizzly that has prompted Governor Matt Mead to announce this month an initiative to reform the 42-year-old Endangered Species Act. I asked him what made him decide now was the time. Just the the experience in particular with wolves, I think, was one of the major catalysts in, in thinking about this initiative. With wolves, as you know, we struggled with that probably for a decade. And when I came into office, I really wanted to see if we could address, those, address that in a positive way versus we're against what the Secretary of Interior wants to do. And so Secretary Salazar and I spent considerable time in probably somewhat unprecedented meetings, just you know, one-on-one. What do you want? What can we do? How do we go about this? What would be the right plan? And Secretary Interior signed off on it. I signed on it. Dan Ash, uh, Director of Fish and Wildlife Service, signed off on it. Everybody was good. And then we implemented it, and it was working. And then we see, uh, you know, sometime after the fact, a judge uh, looks at it and says there's not a sufficient regulatory mechanism. And so I'm just like, where is the finish line on the Endangered Species Act? And so that question, how do we get to the finish line? And that question, when you consider 2,280 species have been listed and 1% have come off the list, and of that 1%, some were taken off because the numbers are wrong and they shouldn't have been on the list, and of that 1%, some are off the list because, in fact, unfortunately, uh, they are now extinct. And so I think we can do better this September it will be decided whether the sage-grouse is listed or not. If it is not listed, we should use it as a positive development of how we can do better with the endangered species, of a model of conservation that is unprecedented. And conversely, if it is listed, then I will be shrugging and trying to figure out what do we do? What does Wyoming do? What does the West do with regard to the Endangered Species Act? Yeah. Well, now, you know, going into it, is there some aspects of the Endangered Species Act that you feel like, you know, we really want to make sure that we protect it and that it, that it has a lot, some, some strengths and it's working? Yeah, I think that's, that's you know, when I first uh, announced this initiative, I think some people were concerned that I don't want to have Endangered Species Act. I do want to have the Endangered Species Act, but I want it to work better because in addition to the detriment for uh, businesses and industry and not knowing where the certainty is, there's also a detriment to species because if you're still focusing time, effort, and money on the wolves, which even the judge says have clearly recovered, what species are we leaving out that we're not focusing on? What is the next species or species that we should be focusing on in terms of how to do better by them? Instead, you're mired down in litigation, money, and time on a species that everyone agrees has recovered but we still can't get to the finish line. Yeah, it sounds like um, one of the things that you'd like to see is just a better game plan for delisting. Exactly, exactly. How do you how do you delist? And not it's not to delist just to oh we got them off the list. It's how do you make sure that you've set up the environment where a species can recover and be strong, and then delist. Uh, so it's not just hey we want to delist everything. It's like with wolves, we've got a plan. We show the recovery and then you delist, and then you should move on instead of just everything that's on there can never come off. Right, and then meanwhile, there's also just a lot more species, you know, more and more species that are, are imperiled. 
almost seems like that you know the time has come to even make the Endangered Species Act stricter. Is there a ways in which you kind of see that there's that that need as well? Well, this is one of the areas where you know if, if we're successful in not having the sage grouse listed, which I think we're going to be uh, based upon. I just think the strength of the state's plans is so good, but. I would bet one in ten people could tell me what the estimated population of sage grouse is in Wyoming. I think most people would say 500, 1,000, couple thousand. You know, it's over 100,000 birds. And the issue with the sage grouse isn't the total population, it is the habitat. If we're successful with a plan on the sage grouse, because it is a protection of habitat, it affects in a positive way a whole number of species because we recognize what sage grouse habitat, uh, sagebrush habitat means for so many species. Is that one of the issues you see with the Endangered Species Act, that it kind of focuses on one species rather than, I mean, and that's definitely yeah. been your, your approach has been this ecosystem-wide taking a look at the sage grouse stuff. Yeah, you know, the Secretary Jewell talks about, you know, sort of the landscape look, and I think, you know, I think that is where the science has been leading us. But even more importantly, and sometimes even more frustrating, it's sort of where the law is leading us. Because as you look at what federal judges say, they say it's not enough that Idaho has protected wolves. It's not enough that Montana has protected wolves. It, because the wolves don't recognize jurisdictional boundaries. And so, yeah, we're, we, I think that the future is not just looking at a spot, uh, you know, a county in a state uh, in terms of species, but looking at it in a broader way. And in doing that, you probably not only do better for the individual species, but as I said with sage-grouse, probably do better for a number of species. Yeah. So now, um, what's the plan for your initiative? What, what are kind of the first steps that you're going to be taking to kind well, of get the, this going? One of the first steps we're going to have is we do not have a date yet. We're working on a date, uh, late October, early November, to have uh, one of the first listening sessions in Wyoming. And we're going to invite at the table at these listening sessions, and there's going to be, I think, five of them, and then a sort of a wrap-up of number six. Uh, you know, Audubon Society, ranchers, oil and gas folks, coal folks, to get as many perspectives as possible. And then hopefully at the conclusion of that, by early next spring, I will look at that and I will submit that for acceptance by the, the Association, the Western Government Association in June in Jackson. And then hopefully with that we can put it on a broader scale and a national scale and provide the courage or the catalyst to say it's okay to talk about this, we're not going to go crazy, and let's see if we can make some positive changes either in operation and in, in uh, statute. You know, it was 1973. I, I think it's fair to take a look at it now. Yeah. So you, you feel like the, as, as an association, the Western governors are, they're not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, I, I, I've not heard that even implied. Uh, Western governors individually have great frustrations with the Endangered Species Act. But, you know, Republican or Democrat, we all care about wildlife. We recognize what it means not only to our economies to have strong wildlife in our states, but to our quality of life. I mean, there's a reason we choose the West to live and raise our families. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me about this. Thanks uh, for covering this issue. Uh, goes without saying it's an important issue for all of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Governor Matt Mead talking about his Endangered Species Act initiative. Now for another kind of Wyoming politics, the small town variety. In Wyoming, it can be a sleepy affair. Neighbors elect neighbors, and if you go to a town council meeting, you're less likely to get riled up than to be put to sleep. But here's what a recent town council meeting sounded like in Pinedale. By God, I am not going to let you bully our employees. I wasn't They work hard. You are. That's the man who's at the center of Pinedale's political firestorm, Mayor Bob Jones. Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan went to Pinedale and has this report. People in Pinedale have a lot to say about Mayor Bob Jones. Do I hate him? I think that's a bit strong. Do I wish we kept our old Barry? Absolutely. Who the hell is he? He's been here for four years. No one knows his name. Who the hell is he? How do you become a mayor of a tiny little western town when no one's ever heard your name? He chased off a city council person by attacking this guy and his wife in a public forum. Yeah, he's, I think he's a little more than brash. That's Pinedale Councilman Tim Lingle, brewery owner Tamara Watts, and rancher John Harbor. 
you'd think the mayor might be worried about having so much bad blood with his neighbors. But not Bob Jones. I have no intention to change. That's why our government's in trouble. Everybody's a bunch of wimps, and I'm not. That kind of talk has put Mayor Jones at odds with the town over a bunch of issues lately. The first big one is Pinedale's Wind River Brewery. On a warm summer night, the brew pub is packed. Wind River's craft brews are popular in town and well beyond its borders. We have people call us weekly from New York, Texas, from Louisiana, from people all over the country wanting our product. We just simply can't provide it right now. Sean Watts is co-owner of the brewery, along with his wife, Tamara. For about two years, the couple has been working to build a new brewing facility and tasting room in town. We would grow 30 to 50 people. They wanted to build it in an area zoned for commercial use, and the town's former mayor and the Planning and Zoning Commission were going to change zoning rules so that could happen. But when Mayor Jones took office, he shut it down. Initially, Jones said the brewery belonged in an industrial zone. Now he says commercial is okay, with some parking considerations, but the debate has gone on for months. Jones says it's all for the well-being of the town, but now Sean and Tamara Watts say they've decided to just move their brewing operation elsewhere. We're leaving this county. We were born and raised here, and he's pushing us out of this county. The mayor has also been accused of making some decisions without consulting the public or following the law, a departure from previous administrations. He didn't make the required public announcement when he held a special council meeting to buy a half-million-dollar piece of property. And he recently put himself on the town's health care policy, which is normally reserved for employees, not elected officials. Mayor Jones argues that he works enough hours as the mayor to qualify as an employee, but he's the first mayor of Pinedale to get insurance, which ends up being worth about two-thirds of his $24,000 a year salary. That's led people like Pinedale Councilman Tim Lingle to accuse the mayor of breaking the law. The 1200 bucks a month that he's getting for health insurance, I think, is stealing. It's flat-out stealing. There's a small minority of the group here in town, and Tim Lingle's one of them. He hates me. He doesn't just dislike me. He hates me. And so they're going out of their way to get me. Bob Jones is a big man in his mid-50s with a white goatee and sharp blue eyes. He spent his career as a home builder in the Washington, D.C. suburbs, and he speaks with an East Coast directness uncommon in rural Wyoming. He says what's really behind these complaints is the fact that, unlike previous mayors, he won't play nice. I don't need the job, I don't need the money, and I don't need my ego stroked. I came here for one reason, and that's to do this job the very best I can. And I don't care if somebody doesn't like what I do, because I don't give one iota about getting reelected. Jones came out of nowhere to win the mayor's race. He ran against a two-term incumbent, and many of the people I spoke to said they voted for Jones just to get the other guy out. Mayor Jones says he identifies as a party outsider who tells it like it is, like a certain presidential candidate. I'm fascinated by Trump in the way that he has turned the whole system upside down. I'm watching him very closely. Jones says not caring about the establishment means he can do things that are unpopular but necessary, like clean up the town's books. I make every decision I can possibly make based on what's best for the town. And what's best for the town, in my opinion, is to make sure we have a good, safe, clean place to live. Whether Mayor Jones' leadership will be ultimately good for Pinedale's infrastructure or economy is still unclear. What is clear is that the political environment of the town has changed. Nowadays, town council meetings are packed, but they can also get pretty out of hand. One voice tried to get the last meeting back on track, 80-year-old town council member Nyla Kennard. This is getting us absolutely nowhere. I don't like any of this. We've got to start getting along if we're going to get anything done. This is ridiculous. For now, there's no sign that the noise is going to let up. Mayor Bob Jones' first term ends in 2018. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryant. When we return managing family finances in a boom and bust economy, this is Open Spaces.
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. With oil hovering around $45 a barrel these days, oil workers can go from making six figures to nothing overnight. When they're working, a $60,000 truck, for example, might be a reasonable purchase and maybe even a business expense. But the oil industry isn't like most businesses. Our Inside Energy reporter Lee Patterson looks at the challenges to budgeting in a boom-and-bust economy. With oil prices in the tank, business in the oil fields is tough. Yeah, we laid off all except for Jordy for about a month and a half. That's Justin Gamble. I met him at a bar in Gillette, a town in northeastern Wyoming. And I'm a salesman for New Coda. It's an oil field service and rental company. Now, Jordy, the one who didn't get laid off. Of course. I'm indispensable. <laughs> His name is Jordan Couch. He is a 22-year-old cowboy and now a supervisor at New Coda. The company actually didn't have work for him for a while, but it was easy to keep him around because he had his own housing. But he wasn't getting paid. I had like maybe three grand saved up. That was gone in just a few weeks. Truck payment, thousand bucks a month. Rent's thousand bucks a month. By the time work picked up, Couch says he was already behind on truck payments and was almost evicted from his apartment. And that is where Couch's boss, Justin Gamble, steps in as a sort of financial advisor. They blow every penny they get. They they make more money than they've ever made before, and they think it's going to be steady. I tell them all the time they need to save their money. Gamble has been through downturns in the energy and steelmaking industries, as well as a divorce and now child support. He knows the money doesn't always last. Yeah, they learn the hard way. Nothing's secure, unless you're making toilet paper, I guess. (laughs) According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the U.S. has lost around 5,000 oil and gas jobs over the past year. But the debt that often follows, it hasn't shown up in banks' balance sheets quite yet. The typical ones on here are certainly your unsecured credit cards your signature loans, your new vehicles. Kurt Thalen, CEO of Camp Co. Federal Credit Union in Gillette, walks me through his most recent loan loss sheet. His records don't show any big losses yet. It's been more of just the last 60 days that we've really started to see a real change. A change in the number of people coming in because they can't make their payments and in the number of vehicles being turned over to Campco. That's more than doubled. We know we've only hit the tip of the iceberg, so it's going to be a matter of how low will these prices go and how long will they go. In the past, low oil prices for long periods of time have hit oil towns hard. Mark Zabak knows that firsthand. He's a banker who moved to Wyoming in 1982, just a few years before the oil bust. You had people leaving town, and it happened almost overnight, just almost overnight. In 1985, personal and business bankruptcy filings in the state were nearly triple what they were in 1980, and several local banks shut their doors. I remember having customers who were robbing their kids' savings accounts to to make payroll taxes for their company back then. The layoffs, the debt, the battered local economies. Zayback, like many others, is seeing warning signs that it could happen all over again. And for workers, a lot of it comes down to this. The lack of financial literacy. I see it, we see it every day. You have young people coming out of high school or maybe college. All of a sudden, they're getting a six-figure check. Most young workers don't come to the oil patch with strong money management skills. And the banks... Well, encouraging lending is part of the business plan. Back at the bar, we go outside. That truck? Jordan Couch still has it. And he's keeping it. Oh, 100%. Even if I go back to Cowboy, I'm still making a thousand bucks a month. I can make the payment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who eats, right? Ah, the wisdom of youth. Sometimes the love of a truck trumps any attempt at Money Management. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Sticking with the topic of oilfield lifestyles, the high school football game is at the center of life for small towns in much of rural America. And one town in western North Dakota is celebrating the return of that ritual for the first time in over a quarter century. Inside Energy reporter Emily Guerin has the story. Here's something people in Alexander, North Dakota, haven't heard for a long time. The Alexander Comets, 
They're a six-man football team. That's right, six-man. The school is still too small for an 11-man team. It's the day before their first game of the season, a home opener against a high school from eastern Montana. Wide receiver Jay Morgan is stoked. I can't wait for tomorrow to come. My head's going to explode right now. Morgan's new to football and new to Alexander. His mom came out here from Bakersfield, California, to work in one of the new truck stops built for the oil field. Last April, he came too. Kevin Clausen coaches the football team in between his weeks living on an oil well pad. I feel like because of the oil boom, we now have a football team. Before the oil boom began in 2008, there were only 55 kids in the entire K-12 through school. Like so many small towns in the Great Plains, Alexander was shrinking as young people moved away and farms grew larger and more mechanized. 10th grader Grace Nelson remembers her parents talking about closing the school. It's kind of shocking to hear you don't have enough people so you can't be a school because school is family. That's like saying you can't be with your family every day. The oil boom has changed all that. The town has grown by 60 percent since 2008 and now there are over 200 kids in the school. And the kids are still coming despite low oil prices and thousands of layoffs. But Nelson says there's a downside. The roads, they're much more dangerous now with all the oil traffic. Over the past three years, we have lost three students. The quarterback's older brother died. So did another would-be football player. So Grace Nelson, who manages the football team, she has a pretty complicated relationship with the oil field, like many people I met in Alexander. I hate the fact that I can drive places that there was never anything and it's nothing but solid pumping units and roads and traffic. Mayor Jerry Hatter. It's changed the landscape, but, but it's given me a lot, so. A lot, like his job of the past 10 years. The mayor job, I get $75 a meeting. My other job, I'm, I'm with the safety department. I work for neighbors drilling. Back in the day, Hatter played football too for a much larger high school in Montana. He wishes he could have been on a small, tight-knit team like the Comets. I mean, these kids here, they they have the ultimate experience. I hope they do good. It's going to be a tough year for them. <laughs> really tough, but... Game day. The Comets are wearing bright red jerseys and clean white socks. They're in a huddle, swaying back and forth and getting pumped up. Then they turn and sprint through a line of screaming high school girls and onto the field where they meet their opponents. Here's the announcer. The Grass Range Winnet Rangers. The Rangers have had a lot of practice, unlike the Comets. They're also huge. At six foot two, a senior Tucker Bevis. The Comets were clearly the underdogs. What? Another touchdown for the Rangers. People don't seem to mind, though. They cheer at every tackle, even if the Comets let the Ranger player run 30 yards first. And when they're not cheering, they're sitting on the back of their pickup trucks watching the game or holding each other's babies and visiting about their cattle or wheat yields. Farmers, ranchers, you get caught up in your lives and you lose track. And it's nice to have everybody back. Leanna Halverson-Dean is choked up. She really missed seeing everyone at these games. And that's what was missing during those 28 years this town didn't have football, that sense of community. This kind of thing is our history, you know. And to have it back, that means a lot. Even if the final score wasn't the glorious victory they hoped for, the Comets lost 65-18. to 18. For Inside Energy, I'm Emily Guerin. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focusing on America's energy issues. In the next segment, what UW is doing to curb campus sexual assaults, the role of Wyoming senators in the upcoming budget battle in Washington, and an interview with the UW's education dean. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News.
I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Melody Edwards. This summer, the Campus Sexual Violence Elimination Act went into effect nationwide, laying out new protocols colleges and universities must follow when it comes to preventing, reporting, and responding to sexual assault. Wyoming, with its one university, ranks fourth in the country in sexual assault reports per student. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank spoke with administrators and advocates at the University of Wyoming about how sexual assaults are handled there and has this report. Someone was sexually assaulted on UW's campus on the very first day of classes this year. It wasn't an isolated incident. Between 2011 and 2013, 27 sexual assaults were reported to campus authorities. And UW Police Chief Mike Samp says the problem is much worse than we know. According to FBI statistics, only about 1 in 10 victims of sexual assault ever report to law enforcement. So although that number may seem high, we could uh, actually have much higher numbers of victims out there. In Samp's nearly two decades policing UW, He's found some common characteristics to these crimes on campus, like alcohol. Virtually every sexual assault that we have reported to us at the police department, there was alcohol involved by the suspect, the victim, or both. We don't have a high incidence of stranger sexual assault that virtually all occur by people that are known to the victim. A Department of Justice study found that as many as one in five women will be sexually assaulted during their time in college, usually by someone in their social circle. A few years back, about 7% of UW students surveyed said they'd experienced a sexual assault. Samp says it's the most common violent crime on campus. It does happen here. They are real incidents. And until we get to the point where our statistics are zero, we all have more work to do. Our, Our society as a whole needs to take it as a serious issue. The new federal rules call for more education on college campuses, increased reporting requirements, and clearer policies for how sexual misconduct is handled. Megan Selheim runs the university's Stop Violence program. She says before UW overhauled its policy to meet the mandate, victims did not know what would happen to them when they reported a sexual assault to administrators. It's now much more consistent and clear. And so it makes it a lot easier for me to be able to tell a student very plainly, first this will happen, here's what you can expect. Some victims seek criminal charges against their attackers. Some opt for sanctions through the university's student conduct process. Selheim explains that process can include an investigation, a conduct hearing, and an appeal. Investigators and hearing officers use a preponderance of evidence as the burden of proof in these cases. They make a determination as to whether or not what has been alleged is more likely than not to have happened. That's a lesser burden than the beyond a reasonable doubt used in criminal courts. In the last academic year, three students were expelled from UW for violating its sexual misconduct policy. Selheim says the process is more prompt and private than a trial. Most of the students I work with appreciate having a reporting option that sort of splits the difference between the criminal process and nothing at all. But either option can be extremely difficult for trauma victims. Becca Fisher works with sexual violence survivors as director of Albany County Safe Project. Most of the people that I have served who have engaged any of those processes have had a level of frustration. In UW's process, Fisher says the punishment doesn't always fit the crime, like a student being expelled, but only after he graduated, and another expelled student whose transcript cited personal reasons instead of his sexually violent behavior. Those kinds of things are troubling to me as an advocate because that means that while they're being somewhat held accountable, they're likely off to the next place to potentially repeat the same thing. Fisher says it's less than ideal when the people handling sexual misconduct investigations and hearings report directly to administrators who have an interest in making sure that the university is perceived a certain way. It does become tricky, and I don't think that the University of Wyoming is necessarily immune to some of those political pressures. We're really focused on the ongoing education that we provide students. UW Dean of Students Sean Blackburn says his priority is educating students, as the new rules require, to stop assaults before they happen. Those efforts include an online portal, panels during orientation, and campus-wide awareness events. Blackburn also hopes that leads to more sexual assault reporting. As we expand our awareness programs, we expect to see those numbers to slowly climb as we address the true issue that was always there. And UW is also required to share those numbers with the public. Last year's campus sexual assault statistics will be released next month.
For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. Now some news from Washington. This is Wyoming senior Senator Mike Enzi's first year as chairman of the Budget Committee. Yet the government may still be screeching towards a shutdown in a month. Matt Laszlo has this story from Washington on Enzi's uphill battle to get the nation's finances in order. Earlier this year, Senator, I mean Chairman Enzi, crafted a balanced budget. It was seen as a major accomplishment for the new Republican majority in the Senate after years of Democrats bypassing the procedure. But a budget is merely a blueprint and the spending committee has yet to bring a single spending bill before the full Senate for a vote. But try telling Enzi his effort was in vain. Oh, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. The Appropriations Committee have taken all 12 budgets, all all 12 appropriations, all 12 spending bills, and they have passed them out of committee in a bipartisan way following the budget. Still, the Democratic minority is blocking those bills from coming up before the full Senate. That's because Enzi's budget increased spending for the military while cutting spending for domestic programs. Enzi says there's still time to bring up the spending bills in regular order instead of passing a so-called omnibus bill that lumps every federal agency into one bill. Now we've got to bring those 12 bills up, which is what we're supposed to do before October 1st, and get them passed. I'm not in favor of doing an omnibus bill, which would be you know, some kind of a massive put-together with the president, because I'm afraid of what he might do to the bill. While Enzi is still sounding optimistic, over on the House side, Republicans are grumbling. It, it, it's indescribably frustrating. That's Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis. She doesn't blame Enzi, though. She blames the Senate filibuster rule, which ties the hands of the majority party. The fact that the Senate has not and continues to uh, stonewall on this issue um, uh, is is a tremendous frustration. That 60-vote threshold that is required in the Senate uh, is something I think the Senate should reconsider. Republicans in the House have had their own problems, though. Remember this summer's Confederate flag controversy? Some rank-and-file Republicans were demanding a vote to allow Confederate flags at federal cemeteries as a part of a spending debate, and party leaders were forced to pull the bill to avoid embarrassment. That debate caused Lummis to watch her hard work go down the drain. I had worked so hard uh, to assist uh, the Interior and Environment Appropriations Committee with getting that bill past the House. That was the bill that we were moving along with, and then came the Confederate flag amendment, and the wheels came off. And uh, it it just brought everything to a screeching halt. Enough about flags. Remember sequestration? That's those indiscriminate budget cuts that ripped across the military and most every federal agency a few years ago. Lawmakers were able to get sequestration off the books for two years by reaching a bipartisan budget deal. And Virginia Democratic Senator Mark Warner bemoans that those talks are not taking place now. Now we're steaming down the path towards the cliff at the end of September, and there's a complete unwillingness, at least from the Republicans so far, to even negotiate. Senator Warner is a moderate, calling for a big budget deal that includes entitlement reforms and tax increases. Any mix that's going to require revenues or willings to make changes in entitlement programs. Revenues are hard for Republicans. Talking about entitlement reform is hard for Democrats. I believe forcing those two items together actually might force both parties off the dime a bit. But Senator Enzi rejects the calls for tax increases to fund what he deems a bloated federal budget. Well, there's always a lot of pressure to spend more. You get credit for spending money. You don't get credit for being careful and and eliminating some programs, mostly because of the furor from the people who had the jobs in those programs. While Enzi's still holding out hope that lawmakers can take up spending bills one at a time, he also suspects at some point there will be negotiations between Republican leaders in Congress and President Obama on next year's spending levels. And he says as budget chairman, he wants a seat at the table. I've spent a lot of time preparing things that ought to be asked for in any of those negotiations. It's not the right way to do it, but if that's the way we're going to do it, I've got some asks in there that I think are very logical for uh, making sure that we stay on track to getting a balanced budget and hopefully to start paying down some of the debt so that the future generations aren't stuck with that. 
This was lawmakers' first week back in Washington after taking a month-long break from legislating. That means the clock is ticking and partisan gridlock may once again lead to a government shutdown. But for now, Republican leaders on Capitol Hill aren't showing much of a sense of urgency. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. It's not only the first week for legislators, but also for college students. And this summer, the University of Wyoming's College of Education welcomed a new dean. Dr. Ray Reitzel takes the reins amid a major effort by the university's board of trustees to boost the college to national prominence in teacher training. Reitzel himself attended the college decades ago. As the new school year kicks off, I sat down with Reitzel and began by asking him what impact his experience as a student at UW's College of Ed has on his approach as its dean. I had one of the best experiences of my entire life while I was here in the Ph.D. program. I was here at a time uh, when the University of Wyoming was in a golden age, I think. Uh, It was a time when the royalties from the minerals were extraordinarily high, and we were able to uh, basically go out and poach faculty from just about every great institution in the country and bring them here. And so I studied with people who were either the you know, the great people or who had studied with the great people in practically every area where I needed uh, the the training that would outfit me for a career that has, you know, resulted in millions of dollars of research funding and uh, a relatively decent run in administration, as well as having authored over 225 publications and books and other things. So not a bad start for a Wyoming kid. And any institution that gives you that kind of a, of a launching pad in life, you, you develop a real, real sense of love for the institution. And my wife says it's not even rational, the love I have for the University of Wyoming. <laughs> you know, I was walking to the football game the other day and heard the fight song for the first time in, in 33 years, and I almost was to tears over it. Uh, it just sounded so good to me again, you know. And so my heart's really in this work, really in this work. You've stepped in to lead the UW College of Education at what seems like a a pretty critical time. Give us a sense of what you were brought here to do. My thinking about why this job is important, why this is a real crossroads for us in the college, is that the trustees, they want to do something to help the college be better. Some might see this as a condemnation of the college's past, and, and I want to put that to rest. That's not the intent of the trustees, nor is it my intent. This is a good college of education, and it has been a good college of education for a very long time. Is it the kind of college of education that we could say is preeminent? Not yet. This is a great opportunity, a moment in time, to lift the college from where it is to a whole new position. That's a rare moment for colleges of education nationally. I think probably the opportunity of a lifetime. So we're speaking now about the um, Board of Trustees' effort to boost the College of Education to national prominence in teacher preparation. I assume that effort will take many years and and many millions, tens of millions of dollars. How will the changes at the College of Education over the next decade or whatever it might be, how will they impact um, what's going on in neighborhood schools around the state? Well, if you look at the broad swath of educational literature and research, it's very clear that other than the parent who is the first teacher, the, the next most influential factor that comes into how well students ultimately will do during their time in the public schools is their teacher. We want to do our part in putting together the best teacher preparation programs so that students and school districts and parents can have a selection of the best teachers that they want for their children in their schools and in their classrooms. Ultimately, of course, leading to a system of education in the state of Wyoming that is second to none. Now, we're we're at least seven years from being able to measure any of that, and probably more realistically 10 to 12 years before we can really start to see the impact of better teachers from our program going into the schools of the state and having the kinds of impacts we want to have. Sure. Now as to where we're currently at with that effort, uh, the Board of Trustees received a half a million dollar grant back in June from the Daniels Fund, a Denver-based private organization, to plan the first phase, I think what you called kind of the plan for the plan, so to Mm -hmm. speak. Mm -hmm. Um, You and the planning group are scheduled to submit an enhancement plan and funding request 
to the Daniels Fund in October. Can you give us any sense of what that might look like? Well, sure. After the grant was received and approved by the Board of Trustees this summer, uh, we constituted uh, a trustees interim planning board committee. And so we had five subcommittees of this interim planning board that have been working since that point in time to identify and to uh, polish up parts of the proposal that will ultimately go to the Daniels Fund. We're just uh, you know, a week to two weeks away where we'll probably have a pretty polished final draft for the Board of Trustees to consider and deliberate over and to ultimately approve to send forward to the Daniels Fund. Wyoming is a state that invests a lot in education. I'm sure that's you know one of the reasons you're, you're happy to be here. And I guess I wonder just what role you think the College of Education can play partnering with schools, with teachers, with state agencies and policymakers to improve education in Wyoming? Well, I think there are uh, some very important roles it can play. First, it's going to provide the, you know, the stream of professionally prepared educators to staff the school needs in the state. Now, how can we support the system beyond that as a college of education? Well, it will. Uh, one of the things that I think is very important for a college of education like this one to be doing, because it's a Ph.D. granting institution, is to be conducting research around problems of policy and practice and providing answers to the K-12 system and to the policymakers of what are best practices and what are best policies based on empirical evidence rather than just uh, political persuasion. I think we can also be an extraordinarily good partner with the uh, Wyoming Department of Education in providing for the state's professional development needs. And we should be able to and be willing to and be provided the resources to. Uh, deliver professional development all over the state um, that is helpful to the real identified needs of the problems of practice and policy in the state of Wyoming. Dr. Ray Reitzel is the new dean of the University of Wyoming's College of Education. Dr. Reitzel, welcome back to Wyoming, and uh, thanks for speaking with me today. It's a real pleasure. It's wonderful to be back in Wyoming. Go Pokes! wrap up, we'll talk about high fashion in Jackson and take to the field with the University Marching Band. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. Major cities aren't the only places that define style. Right now, the 23rd annual Western Design Conference is in full swing in Jackson. The juried show features the work of more than 100 artists from around the country, including many from Wyoming. Director Allison Merritt spoke to Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer about what the event brings to the world of design. There really isn't anything like this in the country anywhere else. And it's, you know, promoting these artists that work in one-of-a-kind creations and crafts. What do you mean when you say there isn't anything like this anywhere else in the country? So the work that you'll see here at the Western Design Conference is all functional work. So it's artists working in leather and woodworking, metal, mixed media, art to wear fashion and jewelry. But the bottom line is that it's not just beautiful. It actually serves for form and function so that it's living with pieces in your home or daily life that serve serve a purpose. When a great example would be last year's Best of Show. Uh, tell me about this remarkable wooden bicycle from Powell. That's a great story. Um, Adi Beckis is a, uh, a woodworker and he is out of Powell, Wyoming. And last year wowed not only our judges, but all of the public with a handmade bicycle. It's a cruiser, a beach cruiser. He not only had it ergonomically correct in every way, but um, then had 200 layers of veneer and, you know, just created this amazing piece of of artwork and um, is coming back this year with, with another bike. And so we're excited to see what he presents. Well, and that's part of what caught my eye about the Western Design Conference is that when you say Western, you think, you know, cowboy hats or knives or uh, jewelry, silver, turquoise, that kind of thing. And that, of course, is all present. But then there are things like this bike. And of course, you could argue that bikes are incredibly Western as well, given the mountain biking culture. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you say that because um, a really great woodworker from Jackson, his name is Bert Fates. He came up to me last year and he said, Allison, I got to tell you, I wasn't sure about that bike at first. 
said, but after I looked at it, that, there was no way you, you couldn't, you know, argue that, that that really did deserve best of show because Bert is very traditional. And a lot of the work that you'll see here is traditional or, or influenced by, say, Thomas Molesworth or Adirondack influences, um, a lot of Native American influence. But then we have this crossover because there are, you know, a huge number of, of collectors and patrons that are looking for more contemporary pieces. It doesn't have to mean heavy log furniture. Well, and there are a lot of very strong traditional ideas, maybe even cliches when one thinks of Western. How much room is there for evolution and for pushing the envelope? That's what we feel the Western Design Conference is, is all about. It is um, really designed to serve as a platform and, and a place for, for fellow artisans to unite and let their sort of Western spirit run wild. So talk a little bit about what role you hope the Western Design Conference can play in shaping popular concepts of what Western is. As the world evolves and people's ideas change, we really hope that the Western Design Conference can serve as a platform to promote the evolution of design, wherever that is tending to go with different trends. That The pieces that you'll see at this show really are what will be setting current trends in the world. And, and that's what's unique about it, I think, too, is that you can walk in with one you know, sort of interpretation and maybe leave with another. So is it fair to uh, encapsulate your aspirations this way, Paris, Milan, Jackson Hole? Absolutely. That's Allison Merritt talking with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer about the Western Design Conference, which is currently underway in Jackson. When the Western Thunder Marching Band takes to the field at War Memorial Stadium these days, they really take the field. With 235 members, all 100 yards are practically filled with people in uniforms. It's the biggest band Wyoming has ever seen. And unlike other schools where you have to audition to be part of the band, UW accepts everyone, even those who have never marched in a band before. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard stepped off with them for their first home football game and has this report. When the marching band wrapped up practice in the days before the first home game, its members were pretty pumped. Benton, hunt! Go Cowboys! Be North Dakota! Go Cowboys! Be North Dakota! Who's got the best band in the land? Wyoming! Band dismissed! Thank you, sir! Have a great day. See you later. They might be so excited because this year, they're bigger than they've ever been. They have new members and a new director. Kalia McCuddy is one of those new members helping grow the band's ranks. She's a freshman piccolo player from Rollins. And today is not only her first time marching at a UW football game, it's her first time marching at a football game ever. And she's about to do it in front of roughly 25,000 people. As she puts on her uniform, she struggles with the straps of her brown overalls. Adjust the straps a little bit so it's not giving me, uh, giving me any troubles. Shea! Can you help me? Okay, so then you have two snappies back here. Oh, okay. And you've got that, and that one's buttoned. McCuddy says she looks like a giant coffee bean. Not the most flattering thing in the world. <laughs> McCuddy is one of a handful of members who has never marched before. Some didn't have bands at their old high school, or the programs were too small to support marching. McCuddy says the band's open-door policy extends to how members treat each other. I used to be like super reclusive because I got picked on a lot in like middle school and elementary schools. And uh, coming here, and everyone is just so nice to you, no matter how dorky you are or what you're into. The band is about to take the field, and McCuddy looks a little nervous. Excited and a little sick. <laughs> just like, what if I screw up really bad or like trip over myself and fall on my face or something? It's, all of the bad things running through my mind. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the field drum majors, Casey Morris, Alex Carter, and Rachel Haas. Celebrating its 102nd year at the University of Wyoming, please welcome the record-breaking 235 members of the Pride of Wyoming, your 2015 Western Thunder Marching Band. I'm 
imagine there's a few kids out there who probably didn't play a note during pregame because they saw it looks like what 22,000 people here and it's pretty impressive probably bigger than their hometowns. That's Bob Belser, the director of bands at the university. When he came to Wyoming 20 years ago, the marching band was one-fourth its current size, with just 60 members. He says much of its growth can be attributed to exposure, having a website, hosting a high school band competition, and some summer camps. It's a little bit of everything. Plus, um, our studio faculty in the School of Music really are supportive, and they recruit kids um, you know, to say, come and be part of the band program, come and be part of the orchestra, come and be part of our trumpet studio, for example. It's just a great thing that we've got going. The band is still all smiles, even as the scoreboard signals certain defeat. Game ends, final score 24-13, North Dakota. The new marching band director, George Schrader, says his students may be disappointed with the loss, but... The band always wins, so that's great. And they did a great job in their first game. The new members enjoyed it. Um, it's something they'll remember for a long time. Kalia McCuddy definitely will. She says she only made one mistake on the field. She missed a horns up. So for the first game ever, that was pretty good. It was kind of an adrenaline rush being out on that field where like everyone's watching you. And happy I did it, but kind of glad it's over. It won't be over for long, though. The Cowboys' home football season lasts through November, and McCuddy and the marching band will have plenty of opportunities to hit their mark. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. listening to Open Spaces. You can hear this program in individual segments on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just click on Open Spaces. You can also comment on our stories and send us ideas for future shows. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to become a fan of the Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook. We also invite you to become a fan of the Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. And you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News. Thank you.